Welcome to the Lost Roman Heroes Podcast. My name is Matthew. My name is Matteo. And together, we're diving deep into the history of Rome from its founding to its death, uncovering Rome's greatest heroes along the way, and ranking them. Yup. And this is episode number 15, Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix. And we're recording this episode on the road. Yup. California. California. So we're going to ask for a little patience and ask our listeners forgiveness because the quality is bound to have some glitches. We're not in our home studio. But the product will still be on par. So Certainly hope so. And we've put in a ton of research into this one because Lula has Lula. Sula. Oh, God. Lula is the Brazilian, the, the president of Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> we're off to a fine start. So let's get rolling. Mateo, we have a little unfinished business from last episode. You may recall that you stumped me with what should have been an easy question. You had asked me, what is the command structure of the Roman army in Marius and Sulla's day? I promised to do a little research. I did a little research. And this is what I learned. All right. Okay. So on the top of the army, you had the consuls. You did not always have consuls in the field leading an army, but when they were in the field with an army, they were top dog. Below the consuls, you had the legatus legionis, the legionary legate. Okay. He was basically the overall legionary commander. He was the general, in essence. Sometimes this was the provincial governor. Right. Third layer of the cake, you had the tribunus laticlavius. Military tribune. He was the laticlavian tribune. And the Laticlavia was the name for the broad-striped toga that this dude wore. It basically indicated, Mateo, that they were senatorial class. Right, military tribunes. They got elected for a year's term, right? And, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and, I don't know about or that. half a year, maybe. I'm not certain about their, their term, but they were, I do know that they were generally very young. They were generally patrician, and they were on their way to rising to full senatorial membership. Right. Fourth layer of the cake, the prefectus castorum. So these were the number three in command in day-to-day in the army. They were the camp prefect, and they were, generally speaking, very long-serving Right, so this was an actual military man. Yeah, this was a hardcore military guy. Not just a senator. No, this guy has been there forever and ever, and he rose through the ranks from the centurion ranks to be the camp prefect. Right. And then... Fifth layer, you had the Angusticlavian Tribunes. There were five of those guys. And these were different from the Laticlavian Tribune. The Laticlavian Tribune, you got the sense, was sort of a, I'm not going to say a pretty boy, but this is a guy that comes from... He's doing it for a political game. Yeah, definitely. Political game. Right. And, but the Angusticlavian tribunes, they were equestrian class. So they were the knights class below senates, uh, senators, and they were seasoned vets. Retainers. They were seasoned vets. Retainers. Retainers? Yeah. They're like the best equipped from good families, but not noble families. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. And then the last layer of officer class, number six, were the centurions. Right. And there were 59 to 60 centurions in every army. And the first among them was? The Primus Pilus. Yes. I think that's the coolest of the cool. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing my own research as well. And oh, I yeah? said that the Primus Pilus was basically the right-hand man to the general because he was the most experienced um, military man in the army. Yes. Usually. Because if I'm not mistaken, in a legion, there's 10 cohorts. Hmm. And there's six centurions in each cohort. And the, the, in each cohort, it's ranked by like um, eliteness. So the first yeah. cohort is going to be the most elite and the 10th is going to be the least elite. Yes. And with centurions, it's the same order. And in the centurions, for each co- cohort, there's the chief centurion, which is number one. And then there's other roles like um, the trumpeteer hmm. and the standard bear within those um, 
other centurion roles. I'm so happy you did that research because I just did a similar research and I discovered that for the first time as well. Yeah. Like I had no idea that first legion was the strongest and that it sort of declined over yeah. uh, from one to 10. Each legion had 10 cohorts. So if you go onto our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, there is an image there of legionary organization. And Mateo, it's basically exactly what you just said. Right. And so total fighting strength in a legion was 5,400 men. And if you want to know how I learned that, how did I didn't learn? read any freaking articles, nothing like that. <laughs> okay. How but you, you could it? do some great, well, okay, obviously I do some reading. But listen, huh. there's this incredible channel on yeah. YouTube called Invicta. And they do all kinds of ancient slash medieval um, history slash breakdown videos. And they did one on uh, the Roman army structure. And you sent that. it to me and I didn't listen to it yet. Nope. But I, good thing. But, but, but no, you I, did your I work. Did. I did. I'm so happy you it. did. I yeah. really am. So one last comment about the Primus Pilus. When he retired, did you know that he would join the equestrian class? Really? Yeah. That's that's great. It is really cool, isn't it? Kind of sad that they wouldn't join the the senatorial class. Yeah, but I guess from you could go to an equestrian and then go to senatorial. And you you could. And that's one, hard. I mean, once you make it to equestrian class, I mean, you've made it because this is a oh, guy yeah. that worked his way up from dirt. Right. That's true. So that was well, an. Well, it's not right. necessarily from dirt because huh? Listen, although they were definitely from a lower. Um, a lower class than equestrian yeah. and patrician and all that stuff, the centurion was still expected to be an educated man because they did a lot of um, paperwork. Did you know that? I no. didn't know until I figured it out. I did not know so that. So they, they basically had to be like a jack of all trades because centurions didn't lead from the back, they led from the front, right? Yes. So the life expectancy and the mortality uh, rates of centurions was not very high hmm. because they were leading from the very front, you know? They were yes. commanding the soldiers. So they had to be seasoned vets fighting they had to know how to fight but they also like you said um uh the pre uh, the prefectus castronum who used to be a centurion was yes. a camp prefect yes all right so each centurion was uh their own uh cohorts or centuries prefect as well hmm. so they all had to do they had to do paperwork and hmm. had to be literary and educated so they had to be from a little bit of a higher class hmm. than just a regular soldier, but definitely also not from like a question. Well, also. I would like to say that you just taught me a couple of things and you're starting out this episode on fire. Yeah. Well, I'm checking out now. <laughs> no, so check out. Stick with me because we're just getting going and this is going to be a long episode. So in episode 14, we are focusing on, excuse me, this is episode 15. We are focusing on, as I said, Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix. We will refer to him as Sulla. He is a one-name guy like Madonna or Prince. One name is all it takes. Oh, yeah. You said last episode something interesting, Matteo, which is that it feels like all of our hero candidates are running into each other in the timeline. In the beginning of our podcast, there were decades or even a century in between heroes, and now they're all jumbled together. Right. Unfortunately... It's going to continue that way for the next three, four, or five episodes because we're in this period of time where everything is happening and right. everybody's stepping on everyone Armageddon. else's toes. Armageddon is nigh. It is. It's coming. Yep. And so everybody is jockeying against each other, and sometimes it seems like they're jockeying against the best interests of the Republic, and they're looking for the same right, thing. Right, because after this, we're going to get uh, Pompey. We're going to get uh, Crassus, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony. All those dudes. And we're going to get somebody Octavius. before them, which is a guy named Sertorius that's going to blow your socks off. I feel like that name that name rings a bell. It's going to ring and it's a super interesting bell. Oh. But let's let's not go there. Let's, yeah. let's stay on track. We have a lot to cover. So once we get past this crazy period, which is essentially the death of the Republic, things are going to return to a more normal pace and, we'll peep, and heroes will stand in their own timeline. Right. So, enough preamble. Let's jump in, Matteo. As we do each episode, let's orient ourselves on the map and in time. We are, once again, back in the city of Rome at the opening of this episode. That's where Sulla was born in the year 138 BC. Matteo, he was 20 years younger than Marius. That's a meaningful amount. That is a meaningful and material amount. And what is happening around the world at this time? Well, in this time, 138 BC, 
in Africa, the kingdom of Kush, uh, modern day Sudan, was growing in power. They had incredible pyramids in Miro. Excuse me if I'm not pronouncing that right. And their culture was super advanced. And also, fun fact, Tell Sudan, me. they were referred to by Egyptians as the people of the bow. Because their, their Nile archers were so elite uh, that, yeah, it was it was very feared That's in, how in they Egypt. Were, how they were known? Very cool. Yeah, I had no idea. The land of the bow. Um, meanwhile, in the Americas, it was all about big changes. The Olmecs in Mexico were wrapping up their era, setting the stage for the cool new players like the Zapotecas and their amazing cities and unique writing. Over in Asia, China's Han Dynasty was just hitting their stride, kicking off projects like the Silk Road. And uh, basically, that was the ancient version of global networking. So, yeah. Very cool. Busy time. So let, let's catch up on our history, Mateo. Let's catch up on Roman history. We are still very thick in the aftermath of the events of 146 that we keep referring to. 146 BC was the year in which the Romans, something happened. The Romans took a turn towards the dark side. Carthage was destroyed. Corinth was destroyed. And the, Ro the tone of the Roman state seemed to change. Right. And Roman history since the fall of Carthage has been marked by not just that, a growing aggression on the part of the Roman state, but as well, this growing gap, Matteo, between the rich and the poor. Right. The, the golden age or the high era of the Roman Republic was declining. The golden age was definitely uh, declining. Uh, and it seemed like we had people, Matteo, that recognized it and they were trying to take advantage of this gap, of this tension between the rich and the poor. In the beginning of the Republic, we talked all the time about the plebs and the patricians. And now, for the first time, we're seeing political parties form in ancient Rome. We had the optimates and the popularis. Right. The optimates wanted to maintain the old order. They were the conservative faction. They wanted Senate control. And these are, rep, uh, these are, are people like Cato and Scipio Emilianus and Sulla, as we'll see in this episode. And the populares were exactly as they sounded. They were, they were about people power. We saw it first with the Gracchus brothers and then Marius. Uh, and there will be more, Matteo, including the most famous of them all, Julius or Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius Julius Caesar, who we will cover in a couple episodes. So it, it's important to say that we covered Scipio Africanus, Matteo, and we talked about this dynamic, but somehow Scipio refused to play the game. He was popular with the people, but he defended the Republic, and he seemed to be the last great that was able to cross this divide and keep things ticking along and stitched together. He was truly a bastion of Roman, of Roman virtue, you know? Most certainly. Of what it was to be a Roman. That's what Roman hubris was all about. And it took a dark turn and it never recovered. He was the last of, of his breed. Right. And then for, for basically my opinion anyways, for the yeah. rest of Roman history, everybody kept referring to themselves as like this, like this is what a Roman is. Like yes. we're Romans. Yes. But they were just like a poor imitation of what once was. But he was really the last one. Yeah. I agree with you. So this dynamic, the optimates and the populares, will, they have defined the late Republic. We're in the end game now. And that, that tension will soon rip the Republic apart. But before we go there to Sulla, Matteo legend says that when Sulla was young, his nurse was carrying him around the streets until a strange woman walked up to her and said, this is in Latin and I'm going to butcher it. Puer tibi e republicae tuae Felix, which can be translated as the boy will be a source of luck to you and your state. Sula is Latin for little calf. That's a cognomen. Mm. He was born in 138 into a patrician family, Matteo, but a very poor patrician family. Little calf. I'm pretty sure the 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 la is uh -huh. probably little. Yeah. Because Caligula is little boots. Yes. Yes. So love mean, probably means little. Yes. Or I'm completely talking out of my butt right now. No, I don't think I don't think you are talking. That makes all the sense in the world to me. I think you're probably right. We're going to have to look it up and come back to you on the next episode. So as I mentioned, Sula was 20 years younger than Marius. Marius was 20 years old when Sula was born. 
he was of the Cornelii gens. We have seen Cornelius and the Cornelii gens before. And in fact, Scipio as well is a shared part of this bloodline. It was an ancient and very prestigious family, but this was the poor branch. Oh, nah. Yeah, Sula was from the poor branch. They hadn't had a consul in a long time, Mateo, and this blew me away. Their last consul was Sula's great, great, great grandfather, a guy by the name of Publius Cornelius Rufinus. That was 160 years before Sula's birth, and he had been booted from the Senate for thievery. He was discovered with 10 pounds of silver plate that presumably he had stolen from someone. Oh, yeah. And since that time, the family had been on the decline and in, in a state of, of disgrace. For, for people that don't understand how long ago 106 years is, that's a long time. It's a long time in a small place. Yeah, 160 a, years yeah. ago? Yeah, in a very small ruling class. They were part of the ruling class, but on the margins. And his dad, Lucius Cornelius Sulia, died when Sula was very, very young. Uh, leaving Sula broke. That's always good. Yeah. So he was well-educated. He was still a patrician, but he was broke. In debt. And that really formed a unique character, Matteo. According to the historian Sallust, Sula was well-versed both in Greek and Roman literature. He had a truly remarkable mind. He was devoted to pleasure, but more devoted to glory. He never allowed his debaucheries to interfere with his duties, but he devoted all his leisure time to them. He was both eloquent and clever, and he made friends easily. When it came to hiding his intentions, his mind was incredibly unfathomable. Yet with all else, he was extremely generous, especially with money. Interesting, no? That is interesting. So he was a patrician, he was educated, he was charming, but broke. As hell. And so though he was of the patrician class, he was compelled by circumstances to lead a different life. Right. Perhaps circumstances and his natural character. So he liked hanging out with comedians, actors, and dancers. Brokies. Yeah. We know how those guys were viewed in ancient Rome. Not very respectable. Not very respectable. He liked drinking. He actually wrote some plays. Bad plays, but he wrote. He led a racy life in a very conservative Roman culture that was super unusual. Which is even more interesting because, as you said, he wanted to preserve Roman virtues in the old so, ways. Yeah. Somehow, he had this conservative bent, but he had a wild streak. Hmm. Interesting. So he was one of the patrician people. He identified with him, as you said, but because of circumstances or maybe his innate nature, he did not adhere to the patrician rules. He was married very young, Matteo. Don't know exactly when. His first wife's name was Julia. Which family do you think? Not a common name at all. No, but Julia. The Julia. Of the Julia. So she's probably somehow related to Julius Caesar. Caesar. She died young, he remarried, and he would wind up remarrying Matteo on five separate occasions. Most of them died. One wife was divorced. And it, it's just... They just died of chance? Yeah, I, I assume of chance. But it seems, he seems, strikes me from very early on as a very modern man. Yeah. Definitely so, forward to thinking. Before we get rolling into his story, let's take a quick look at the man. If you go to our website, listeners, www.lostgermanheroes.com, you'll see a bust of Sula. Keep in mind that he had reddish, blondish hair. He had sort ginger? of pale skin and freckles. So he was ginger. Uh, call him what you wish. Freckles I... and reddish, blonde hair equals yeah. orange. Yeah, I'm going... <laughs> so he was ginger. I don't know where the whole ginger thing comes from. When I was a kid growing up, people had red hair. They weren't ginger. I'm, I'm not certain. I don't entirely understand the you concept. You could have red hair and not have freckles. But freckles and red hair equals That means ginger? ginger? Okay, well, fair enough. So it, 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 it appears that that's Sulla. So the curtain rose on Sulla, Mateo, in the historical record in 108 BC. And when he turned 30, that's 108 BC, he stood for the caestership. He was elected. And he was assigned to Marius and sent, where all aspiring young men in the well, army thought, are sent. I thought casters were were bankers, or they dealt with the finances. They did. 
So why was he put in? He was he wasn't a military tribune. So why was he sent? He was not yet a military tribune, but he gets to a position of military uh, I think responsibility Kaser, I quickly. Kaser was not. Military. I agree. I think they're they're assigned to the army and they're responsible for the army's finances. So, or who knows? Maybe at this point, like if you just got a title, you got a title, and like they kind of lost their old. Like responsibilities. There, there may be some truth to that because we'll see in, in, in a little bit exactly how quickly he went to leading troops in war. So this is, remember, we were the Wormans were at war against Jugurtha, who was the grandson of? Mansa Musa. Of Masinisa. So that war had started in 112 BC. We're now in 108 BC. So we're four years into the war. Several Roman commanders had gone up against Jugurtha and lost, or they had been bribed, or they had been defeated or outmaneuvered. And their names were Bestia, Spurius, Albinus, and Metellus. So a, a large number of I feel like Roman we heard commanders. Of we did, because he was the, the, uh, the uh, patron of Marius. Oh, yeah. So finally, Marius had been elected consul to put an end to the war. And while he worked on raising his own new radical army, remember we talked about how radical his army was. Right, the Marian reforms. The Marian reforms. Changed. The, uh, changed. He, he asked Sulla. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, continue. No, no. No, no, please. He changed. Yeah, changed. He changed so much. Well, he changed military structure forever. He did. Okay, now continue what you're going to say. Okay, I was going to say that he asked Sulla at that point, before they got to Carthage, to help him organize the cavalry. 30 years old, that's a huge responsibility for a young guy. Uh, there's but some. We also have to remember, take into uh, account, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you did not. 30 was not that young back then. That's true. Like, since their life expectancy, that's like half their life expectancy. That's true, but he didn't have much military experience at that I point. I mean, yeah, it seems like he was just kind of a drunk loser. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. And maybe a fun guy, a fun, charming guy. Yeah, but kind of an idiot. A guy you want to hang out with, maybe? Yeah, a guy, but like, you like, you like, he's fun when he's drunk, but then you realize, like, when he's sober, <laughs> like, he's not much more bright. Because then he'd just be like, yo, check out these plays I wrote. That, that, you, you may well be right. And when that, you're drunk, you're probably like, oh my God, those are great. But when you're sober, you're like, yeah, dude, that's, are, that's not so good. <laughs> these are not looking too sharp. There's, there's probably some truth to that. He was unproven. But somehow, Marius saw something in him and asked him to take control of the cavalry. And there's some speculation that maybe, because Marius was also married into the Julii clan, so maybe there was some personal connection there, some basis for trust. Right. So these guys head off to Carthage, Matteo. We remember Marius pursued the Fabian strategy. He was going town by town. Things were moving kind of slowly. The Senate told Marius to negotiate a peace with Bacchus, who was uh, the father-in-law of Jugurtha, and Marius said, okay, I'll do it. But he didn't go himself. He sent Sula. Bacchus sounds pretty Carthaginian now that we talk about it. Uh, it does. Or Bacchus as well. It's, it sounds very... Wasn't, there, wasn't the Carthaginian god called like Bacca or something like that? No, Baal. Baal. Baal, which sounds like a Star trek name. Yeah. So Marius sent Sula as his envoy. And as you said, Sula, when he had a drink or two in him, and you did too... He was charming, he was handsome, successful, sort of, and he somehow convinced Bacchus that it was in his best interest to side with the Romans and to give up Jugurtha, his son-in-law. Right. Which he did. And not only that, but Sulla formed a strong bond with Bacchus that would last a lifetime. Here's a fun fact for you. Years later, 91 BC, Bacchus paid for a massive statue of Sulla to be built in Rome, showing Sulla capturing Jugurtha friendly propaganda for his friend Sula. Wow, that's an, that's always a great way to picture your son-in-law. Yes. Being subjugated by your buddy. Yep. So this war ended, Matteo, the Jugurthian war, it ended because of Sula. But when they got back to Rome, you will recall that Marius got the triumph, Sula got no recognition. And as a guy that doesn't really get a lot of recognition as a guy whose family he probably feels like he has a little trip because his family was always been seen as like the in the gutters kind yeah. of. You bet. I bet that probably struck him personally. And yet he was patrician. Marius was a novus homo. He was a pleb. And Marius is elevated above him. Right. And at this point, Marius is basically the most successful Roman we've seen. Yes. In, in Roman history. Yes. How, like in the Roman dream, Marius was it and more. 
Certainly in recent history, in the last 50 plus years, Mario. No, but I'm not talking about like just military success. Like, because then obviously you can't argue with Scipio. But I'm just talking about when you think of the Roman dream rise to senatorial class, get rich, become consul. Marius was the most most successful we've seen at this point. He was. He was a superstar. He was superstar. Like Jordan. But he was like Jordan, but he was he horrified the Senate. Horrified them. Right. Because he was a novus homo. But he gave hope to a new world, a new Roman world that was Michael Jordan. Basically. Yeah. Like Jordan. Like Mike. Yeah. So then we saw Marius against the the Cimbrians and more cracks in this connection between Sulla and Marius appear. Four years later, Rome was under assault by the Germanic tribes. We talked about this, the Cimbrians, the Teutons, the Tigruni, and more. 200,000. 200,000 men. The Senate was getting really annoyed with Marius's success to some extent. He was a novus homo. He kept getting elected to consulships, one after another after another, because it was the tribunes of the plebs that were electing him. But the reality is the Senate needed a winner. To and go against these German tribes, winner. Marius was their only proven winner. However, Matteo, to counterbalance this novus homo, they raised up who? Sulla. Our friend Sulla. He was a poor patrician, but he was still a patrician. And he had some military talent. He had scored some wins in Carthage. Not just diplomatic wins, but military wins. And so Sulla became legate under Marius in the year 104, and he himself won an impressive victory over a tribe in Gaul. Not the main ones, but another tribe. In 103, he became military tribune. And he was sent to negotiate with a Marian tribe. And he got them to defect from the Chimbri and they joined the Romans. So now we're starting to see Sulla gain more wins under his belt. He you was know, doing well, Matteo. You know what the story kind of reminds you of? What? Actually, I'll bring it up later. I'll bring it up. Um, yeah, I'll bring it up after Okay. So he was doing well, but he felt like he wasn't moving fast enough, Mateo. And he wasn't moving fast enough because somebody was holding him back. Yep. Mr. Marius. Father of the people. Plutarch wrote that Sulla, perceiving that Marius bore a jealous eye over him and would no longer afford him opportunities of action, but rather opposed his advance, attached himself to Catullus, Marius's colleague. So Sulla, bugged by Marius, sensing he was an obstacle. Will you stop making those little noises? Sensing that he was a little jealous of him. Yeah. He requested a transfer to Catullus, who was the other consul for the year. And he moved from Gaul to the other front in Cisalpine Gaul, which for our listeners, that's the area. basically Right on top of Italy. Yeah. Like Switzerland, Milan, kind of. Exactly right. So in 102, as we heard last episode, Marius destroyed the Teutons in Aquae Sextae, which was Aison-Provence. And then the Cimbri, or Cimbri, blew over the Alps, and they defeated Catullus with Sulla. Mm -hmm. Marius moved into Italy to support Catullus. Sulla, Matteo, was given responsibility for provisioning both the armies, and he did a solid job. Plus, he was in command of the cavalry. And in that position, he outclassed the Cimbri horse or Cimbri horse. And at the final battle of the Raudian field, the Cimbri were destroyed and Sula played an important part as commander of the cavalry. But we already know who's going to get the credit. Yes. We head back to Rome and Marius and Catullus got twin military triumphs. Right. Now, friends of Marius said that Marius should have gotten it alone, but Marius... Which he probably should have. Probably. Because Catullus did get smacked the first time. He did get smacked around. But this is before Marius goes off the rails and loses his his marbles. And he insisted that the honor be shared. So kudos to you, Novus Homo. You did did good there. No honors for Sula, though, because he was still a junior officer. Right. So the next step up the ladder for Sula would have been the Edelship, those are the guys in charge of infrastructure and buildings and things of that nature, right, at least in the job. Old Republic. But the Adels were also responsible, Matteo, for shelling out the money to put on games. It was a super expensive job. Sula was broke. And so he didn't stand for the Adelship. Instead, he sold. He stood for the Praetorship. Which is a hard position to get. And he was defeated. 
And Plutarch said, thinking that the reputation of his arms abroad was sufficient to entitle him to a part in civil administration, he took himself immediately from the camp to the assembly and offered himself as a candidate for praetorship, but failed. And if I'm not mistaken, the praetor, hmm. and I might seem like a complete idiot right here, hmm. is like kind of the speaker of the house. Like he's the guy who's in the Senate and he has, I, wait, no, I'm, no. I'm not the, certain. Because you know that position that's always like, usually like the oldest senator. Yes. No, that's Princeps Senatus. Mm. Okay, I'm going to shut up. Yeah, yes, the, no, <laughs> don't shut up. But anyways, this guy didn't give up, Matteo. He never gave up because he stood again for the praetorship the next year. This is 97 BC and he won. Good for him. And in the next year, 96 BC, he was assigned the governorship of Cilicia. He was the Praetor Urbanus of Cilicia, which was the Roman province of Asia. It was... It's, it's, okay. Could you stop Correct me if I'm wrong? whacking bottles Cilicia around? Cilicia huh. is right north of Cyprus, basically, right? Cilicia, no, Cilicia, it's, it's the upper bit of Anatolia. What? It's just across the was, Bosphorus. No, it's, it's... I thought it was right above Cyprus, like, kind of... No. Huh. No, this is the upper bit of Anatolia. It's I basically... It, sure? it's it, yeah it's roman asia it's there's a map in www.lostromanheroes.com if you go to our website you'll see it it used to be pergamum mateo there's n no you're wrong that's Cilicia. huh you're wrong no he was the praetor or but yeah, yeah huh? you're wrong i'm right and you're wrong are you sure yeah Cilicia, right there boom Cilicia. okay mateo's right i'm wrong Boom. And you know how I know that? A video game. Thanks. <laughs> That's beautiful. To our listeners, I would like to offer a humble apology to my son. He is right. I am wrong. Uh, Cilicia was not the upper bit of uh, Anatolia. It's uh, it's it's further it's south, e east like and right south north of coast. Cyprus. It's yeah. basically where Seleucia is. Or Seleucia. I don't know. I think it's well, Seleucia, right? It, it was part of Roman Asia. Uh, it used to be part of Pergamum, and we know, we learned a couple episodes ago that King Attalus died, and he willed it to Rome. And so the Senate sent Sulla there, Matteo, with a specific objective. This was a big responsibility, independent responsibility for Sulla. His job was to restore king, the king of Cappadocia, Ariel Barzanis, to the throne. Ariel Barzanis, a name that rolls off the tongue, had been booted from his throne by King Mithridates VI of Pontus. Right. And Sulla was not given many troops to do this. He raised some local troops. He moved very fast into Cappadocia. He faced superior enemy forces, Matteo, and he managed to rout them with this improvised army. And his troops were so impressed that they called him Imperator. Whoa. That's... Imperator. Now, that didn't mean he was emperor. It basically meant commander, but it was very important. Because unless you were acclaimed imperator by the troops, you couldn't send in your application to the Senate for a triumph. You need to apply? Yeah. That's pretty cute. For a, Yeah. At this point, you had to apply. Probably in the early days of the Republic. They just gave it to you. you just, like, or, or you seized apply it. Apply for a parade, basically. Now you apply for your parade. And there were very specific rules governing the parade. You could use the title Imperator Matteo after your name, from the time that you were acclaimed by your troops to the day of your triumph. Okay. So it was a big deal. And he, he, he did that. He soaked it in, huh? And while he was on campaign, something else very interesting happened, Matteo. He made it to the Euphrates. Okay. All right? And while he was sitting on the Euphrates, the Parthians sent an ambassador. His name was Orazubus, Orazubus. And he approached the Roman camp to negotiate with the Romans. Matteo, this was the first Roman contact with the Parthians. And Sulla was the guy that made that contact. He negotiated the Euphrates as the frontier between Roman and Parthian territory. So I'm guessing by this time, the Seleucid Empire was smacked and out of here. Yeah, Seleucids were long gone. gone. We now have the Parthians. And during this negotiation, Matteo, something super cool happened. What? Sulla sat down with, in assembly, 
with Erasmus on one side, and he put Ario Barzani's on the other side. Sulla sat in the middle. And in doing so, he showed that Rome was superior, both to the Parthians and the Cappadocians. Power play. Yeah. And when this dude, Erasmus, returned to the Persian courts, guess what happened to him? I guess they weren't very happy. Off with his head, dude. Oh, nah. Poor guy. He was executed for allowing himself to be outmaneuvered by the Romans. And still, the Parthians ratified the deal after they killed their ambassador. So there was one more battle left for Sulla in the east. He defeated King Tigranes, the great of Armenia in Cappadocia, which was another huge deal. This guy was not to be trifled with. Sulla trifled with him, defeated him, and then in 92 BC, this guy, Mateo, who was sort of like on the cusp of being relevant and not relevant and sort of important or not important, he came back to Rome and all of a sudden he was important. He he had proven himself. A year before... uh that guy would build the statue of him, whatever his name Yes. Bacchus. Yeah, yeah, Bacchus. And he arrived just in time for? The social wars. Yes. You remember Marcus Livius Drusus? He was the tribune of the plebs who proposed citizenship for all Italians. Yeah, and they, they had to get rid of him. Yeah, and the Senate had him done away with. Oh, what a great idea, Marcus Livius Drusus. Dead. Yeah, what a great idea. Let's go talk about it in this dark room. Yeah, exactly. With some knives in our hands. Yep. Not yours. Italy exploded, Matteo, you'll recall, after his assassination. Yep, and they set up a, like a different whole different country, right? Yeah. Yes, Italia. They did. Because they were so sick and tired of fighting for Rome and not reaping the benefits of citizenship. They had been asking for citizenship forever and ever. When Drusus was killed, they said, you know what? Take your citizenship and stick it in your ear. We're just going full-blown independent. So Lucis, uh, Lucis, Sula at this point in the social war, he was assigned as legate, Matteo, remember, legate is basically general, under the consul Lucius Julius Caesar. Good name, but not the Julius Caesar of legend. Right. And he was sent down south. The enemies that they were fighting were the Etruscans, the Umbrians, and the Samnites. Still there. And still claiming their independence. Still pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Of the rape of the Sabbi? Oh. No, those are the Sabines. Yeah, I forgot. Sula was operating defensively in the beginning of the war. He was protecting Lucius's flank. He cooperated at some point with Marius as well to defeat the Marci, another tribe. And then in 89, Sula was served mm. as legate under the consul Lucius Portius Cato. Mm. Must have been a relation of the Cato that bugged you and bugged me very much. Probably. And then Cato was killed in battle, and Sulla was prorogued. He was like a temp, given a temp proconsul position, and he was given supreme command over the southern theater of war. This was big promotion. Oh, yeah. yeah it was, someone had to fill the shoes. And he was eager to do so. He went straight, Mateo, to Pompeii and laid siege to Pompeii, which, which was, was enemy territory. I'm assuming it was a big city in uh, this. It it was split off country. It was one of the it was one of the major centers. I don't of, they have of a the map, rebels. Right? It'd be cool to look at a map. Uh, I don't think I've included a map, although we can look for one and include it on the website. So the uh, he's laying siege. Roman soldiers, by the way, Matteo killed the legate under Sulla. Okay, with the position he previously held. Basically. But Sulla refused to punish them. Who knows what happened? Who knows why? He, there must have been something more to this. He refused to punish them. He just urged them to behave better. Which really makes you wonder what was going on there. There had to have been a reason because things wind up playing out in his favor. A general of Pompeii, a guy named Lucius Cluentius, he was in charge of the forces of Pompeii. He tried to relieve the city with 20,000 men. So he's approaching the city from outside. Sulla is at the walls, and Sulla fought off Mateo, Lucius Quincius. Right. And he pursued Lucius, caught up to him outside the walls of another city that was a center of the rebellion called Nola. Lucius said to Nola, open the gates. I'm being chased by Sulla. And Nola refused to open the gates. And Sulla personally fought Lucius under the walls and personally killed him. 
That's pretty bad. Bad. Bad arse. Bad arse. Yeah. Can we say arse is good? Oh, we can't say. Yeah, it. arse is our old English. We can't say badass. I mean, eh, we can ask this sort of borderline. But guess what else? Sula's army ordered him the grass crown, Matteo. So. This, the these are the guys. That he got it, right? that, no, first time. These are the guys that killed but I the legate. Went over the walls in Carthage, and that's. Oh wait. No, no, no. That's Bracus. Yeah, I'm confusing. So these are the guys that killed the legate. Sulla pardoned them. He wound up pressed up against the walls with a twenty thousand army man army against him. Turned around the situation, killed the commander of that army, won the battle, and he got the grass crown. We haven't seen one of those for a long time. The last grass count, gra- crown Mateo was Scipio Emilianus in the Third Punic War. And there would be two more in Roman history after Sulla. You okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. Two more in Roman history, Mateo, after Sulla. One was Augustus. He would be the last winner of the grass crown. Yeah, but though it wasn't like, I mean, they gave it to him because he was. Because he mean, was Augustus. Right. Yeah, it was kind of a cheesy. It wasn't a real win. Yeah. I mean, but Augustus wasn't a big soldier. Not at all. We're going to talk about him. Strategist. Yeah, will okay. be interesting. It's not. See, it's not, not. But there was one other dude that won a grass crown before between Sulla and Augustus. His name was Quintus Sertorius Bellring. Remember that. Say, name. We're going to talk about him next. Yeah. So Sulla took Pompey, Matteo. He slew uh, and captured a number of neighboring towns, and he made it a very personal mission to pummel. The Samnites. <laughs> Just, nice. He had a thing against the Samnites because the Samnites, remember, these guys were no little local tribe. They were the core of the Italian Roman army for mm-hmm. many decades, if not centuries. They were hardcore soldiers, and they were at the heart of this rebellion. Sulla took the fight to them. Absolutely. Then in 90, you recall that Lucius Julius Caesar, as consul, passed the Lex Julia, giving all Italian tribe citizenship except the Samnites except the Samnites, Mm -hmm. because the Samnites were still not laying down arms. And so, that's the social war. And while the social war was still bubbling in the West, darker events were unfolding in the East, Matteo. And if you go to our website, listeners, www.lostromanheroes.com, you will see a map of what's happening in the East. And Matteo just pointed out to me, again, how wrong I was, Silesia is exactly due north right, it's, from Cyprus. It's clearly like very could nice not be due, And the Seleucids were still around. They just weren't. Could not be more due northier. Now, the Parthians had been kicking the Seleucids out for a while now. Parthians, yeah. I guess the Armenians, the Cappadocians, I mean, they were all like breakoffs from the Seleucid Empire. So yeah, the Seleucids were, were on their way out. But yeah, Cilicia is nice there and nice and highlighted, you know? So, (laughs) yep, you're absolutely right. So in the east, Matteo, this guy we referred to before, King Mithridates of Pontus, was stirring up serious trouble. Pontus was this area in modern Turkey, close to the Black Sea, uh, super close to the new Roman province of Asia that used to be Pergamum. And remember before the social war, we said Sulla was governor of Roman Asia. He did some good things there. His job while there was to restore the king of Cappadocia, Ario Barzanius, to the throne. But as soon as Sulla left, Matteo, to go home to Rome to fight in the social war, Mithridates and his ally, Tigranes the Great, who Sulla also defeated, booted Ario Barzanius for the second time from Cappadocia. Poor guy. That guy's just not they, a strong. He's not, he's, a strong not a, hand, he's not a strong hand. And they also booted the king of Bithin, uh, Bithynia, Bithynia, sorry, Bithynia, Nicomedes, the Fourth, from his throne. So they booted two kings off their thrones, and this these thrones, Matteo, were in essentially Rome's new backyard. They were buffer states, yeah. So those former kings appealed to Rome for help, and Rome sent a former consul, wait for it, wait for it. I'm waiting. Wait it, wait. Yep. Manius Aquilus and Manlius Maltinus. What? Mm, Manlius is back. Two Mannies. Manius and Manlius. And Manlius is a name we've heard before. It's Cafecito. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, sent two Mannies to the rescue to restore the two kings. Okay. And miraculously, the Mannies did their job. Weird. They didn't need to use force. Weird. How'd you do that, Manny and Manny? 
Oh, no. We must, uh... How had... was it such a cakewalk for you, Manny? Was it cake or was it torta? We'll never know. Well, <laughs> or... Un engaño. Was it a trick? Mm. It was a trick, Manny. You see, there was a problem. And we'll see. Exactly how this unfolds. Mateo, the two deposed kings, how did they get the Senate to put them back in power? Well... They had taken out huge loans in Rome to be able to bribe the Roman Senate to restore them to their thrones. Now they had this tiny little inconvenient problem of the Roman moneylenders saying, time to repay, guys. But poor little Ario Barzanius and Nicomedes, they could not pay the bill. But the bill was non-negotiable. So representatives of the Roman moneylenders had actually accompanied these kings east, made a little suggestion. They whispered in their ears. And they said, hey, guys, you know how you can pay us back? Why don't you invade Pontus? Mm. That belongs to Mithridates, the guy that kicked you off your thrones. Invade rich Pontus. They're the source of the trouble, and you'll raise all the money you need to pay our bills. But, Mateo, yep. this was not an order from the Senate. This was just the selfish desires of the knuckle breakers back in Rome. Probably some guys named Vinny. Right. Vinny said invade Pontus, but Vinny made a big, big mistake. First of all, King Arzio Banis didn't do anything. Arzio Barzanis. He just so sat on his throne and said, eh, not so certain this guy, Mithridates, scares me. Right. But Nicomedes said, oh yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. He invaded Mithridates' ancestral lands of Pontus, and he raped, and he pillaged, and what did Mithridates do? Well, he 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 called the the banners, called the men to war, right? No. Oh. He did nothing. He could have done something. He had overwhelming military force, but he did nothing. He let this happen. He let Nicomedes go home with a ton of loot, and then Mithridates sent a very polite letter to Rome saying, "Oh dear, Roman Senate." I am so hurt. I can't believe this happened. I'm, I'm really wounded because we had we had a deal. Right. So Mithridates acts deeply hurt, but so he now was, he has his Cassus Belli. Yes, that's exactly where I'm going. It took me a while to get there, but he has his Cassus Belli. I love the fact that you used the word. He had been wronged. Everybody knew that Mithridates had been wronged, and so he was completely justified when he raised his banners and he invaded. Bithynia, and he tossed Ariobarzanus. For the third time? For the third time from his throne. This friend of the Romans was booted yet again. And he effectively, when he did that, Matteo, he effectively declared war against Rome. Because Bithynia was a protectorate? It was. Basically, it was like a puppet government. Yes, it was a puppet government. That's right, because Rome had just restored him to power. So he then went on to defeat Matteo, both Mannies in battle plus two Roman proconsuls in the neighborhood. When this guy wanted to act, he acted. Right. And there was no messing with Pontus. They were probably the most powerful force, the most powerful Fomateo that Rome had faced and the most organized state since Carthage. Yeah, probably. Because nobody out west was giving them issues anymore. No. All the other societies and stuff were all out east. And they may have fought some fearsome tribes from the north, but those were not organized and effective states. Pontus was that. It was Carthage-like. Right. Very quickly, Mateo, Mithridates was able to occupy most of the Roman Asia province. And when he did so, he remitted taxes for five years, making tons of friends. And Rome declared war. This could not stand. What did Mithridates do when Rome declared war? Well... He went to war. Mateo, he took it one step further. He took it one step way further. In 88 BC, he sent a secret message to all of his regional commanders, his satraps. They were regional governors, regional leaders. Right. And he demanded that within 30 days, they must kill all Italians, men, women, and children living in their territory. So it's not even just about Rome now, because there was Roman citizens, but now it was all Italy. All of Italy. And Matteo, in a very short period of time, a question of weeks, 
80 to 130,000 Italians, including Romans and others, were killed. And some say this was the first known episode of a true genocide. And in history, this moment is known as the Asiatic Vespers. You know, that region had a lot of, of um, genocides. Because there was the more recent Armenian genocide. And that Turkey has never acknowledged, yes. And we love Turkey and love the Turks, but that is definitely a stain. It's not them, it's their government. Yes, entirely. Entirely right. And that was 100 years ago, but it still hasn't been acknowledged. So this Asiatic Vespers, Matteo, was so far beyond a slap in the face of Rome. This was the biggest gauntlet that could be thrown. Right. And he did not stop there, Matteo. He put together a mega fleet. He scoured the Adriatic of Roman ships and then under his super talented general, a Greek general named Archelaus. He was a Cappadocian noble descended from the Greeks that arrived in Cappadocia with Alexander the Great, Matteo. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So Archelaus set sail with the armies of Pontus for Greece. And on the way, he captured the Cyclades Islands and the critically important island of Delos. You remember Delos? Yeah, that's where the slave trade place was. It was the slave trade place. It was it was like it was the trade hub. And we had the good fortune of visiting there. And to our listeners, if you ever make your way to Mykonos, eh, Mykonos is all fine and dandy. Yeah. Not too much yeah. history there, but take a little boat to Delos and be blown away. The ruins are very, very nicely intact. Incredibly intact, yeah. So Archelaus then landed an army in Greece, and he occupied Athens, Matteo, at the invitation of the Athenians. And while there, he installed a friendly little dictator, a guy named Aristion. Which, by the way, uh, the Greek city-states, or the Greek cities would continue to see themselves not as Romans, but as... Uh, whatever state they are for basically the rest of history. Even like nowadays. I think there was a period of time, Matteo, in the latter Eastern Empire, Roman Empire when they considered themselves Romans. But they considered themselves Greeks. Well, I guess the Romans started to consider themselves some kind of hybrid, but we'll, we'll get there. Right. We'll get there. So this is where we are in Roman history. And not just a little tiny bit, Matteo. They just had 120,000 citizens murdered in cold blood, somebody thumbing their nose at them, somebody that marched into Greece that had been under Roman right. control for a long their time. puppet deposed, southern Greece rising up in revolt. And this was not just a challenge, but it was a shot at glory, the biggest glory available, again, since the fall of Carthage. Right. This is the biggest shot in years. And you already know who wants all that glory. Oh, you know who Old wants it. Old man Marius knocking at the door. <laughs> well, yes. Old man Marius wanted this. It was his last chance. His magnum opus, oh, if I'm saying that right. You said it perfectly, and that's beautifully put. Mm, glad I didn't make up that word. No, you did not. You used the perfect word at the perfect, perfect moment. He really wanted it. But in 88 BC, Matteo, Sulla was elected consul for the first time at the age of 50. Marius was 70 years old. Yep, that's 50 plus 20. It is. Marius's time as the top dog was, was over. over. And Sulla's time had finally come. And he knew it. Everybody knew it. He knew it, but he couldn't accept it. Marius could not. Mm -hmm. He couldn't let go. You got to know when to let go. Father time gets all of us. Shortly after Sulla's election, he was given control, Matteo, as expected, because he was the consul and he had real military success. He was given control of the expedition against Mithridates. The biggest opportunity for glory and plunder in many years. But first, there was trouble at home. We saw it in the last episode. This guy, Sulpicius, yet another tribune of the plebs. That tribune of the plebs position was pesky. It was and OP. it was causing lots of trouble. And heckin' OP. Yeah. Uh, lots of what? OP What's equals OP? overpowered. Ah. Well, Sulpicius was stirring up violence, a lot like the Gracchi in the name of the people. 
He was trying to push through a law, Matteo, granting voting rights to all Italians. And the two consuls prior to Sulla, uh, sorry, the two consuls, uh, Pompeius, Rufus, and Sulla, opposed the bill. Sulla did not want to enfranchise all Italians and give them all the same voting rights. So Sulpicius took to the streets. You remember we talked about it last episode with his thugs intimidating people just like Gracchus. I know we voted Gracchus into the Hall of Heroes, but I still have my little issues with it. It's okay, but we let the people decide. And he's he's a controversial figure. He is. But if you guys have an issue with that, you should have voted. That is right? true. <laughs> Not true. everyone voted. That is true. And you get what you get. You don't get upset. You don't get upset. So, Sulpicius was shrewd. He made a deal with old Marius. He said, hey, old man Marius. He probably talked like that. Hey, old man Marius, I'm going to give you... An offer you can't refuse. Yeah, I'm going to give you an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to give you the Mithridates command. If you make my law a law. Like that. Hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, Sulpicius's thugs were rampaging in the streets intimidating the Senate, they couldn't conduct business, intimidating the patricians, and Marius said, yeah, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, let's do this thing. So, things moved quickly from there. The consuls, Sulla and Pompeius Rufus, passed a state of emergency. They froze the city. They shut down the public houses, taverns, they shut down the Senate. Sulpicius's mob turned berserko violent at that point. They killed Rufus's son, the son of the consul, Right. And at this point, the two consuls genuinely feared legitimately for their lives. Rufus, so much so that Rufus resigned the consulship. He said, I, I don't want any more of this. And right. Sula Mateo, brave guy, tough guy, took shelter in Marius's home on the Palatine Hill. Wow. How did he manage to do that? He did not realize that Marius was really behind this at that point. Marius was living like a prince on the Palatine, and Sula took shelter in what he thought was his friend and mentor's home. But the friend and mentor who had scorned him a few times. Had and... stuck it to him a few times, that's true. So, But still, it surprised me that Sula didn't really understand the nuances of what was happening in the shadows, or that Marius was at the heart of it. And somehow Marius convinced Sula to raise the state of emergency and to allow Sulpicius to bring laws. And, and Sula, Matteo... He did so. He raised the state of emergency. He must have felt like he, knew he was in a very weak position, that he didn't have a choice. He was essentially a prisoner in the house of Marius, and he saw no way out other than to consent. And then he fled the city. You know what this is like? Hmm. Kind of reminds you of like um, Pablo Escobar. I don't oh, know how much of, oh lord listen i don't know how much I of don't that know. history you know okay remember we have a large contingent of colombian listeners and family members right but it's kind of like i'll tell you why hmm. because pablo escobar uh one of his big dreams was to become a politician right yeah and he ended up being inaugurated into congress if i'm not mistaken yeah but he kept obviously like he was able to remain autonomous for a long time and uh continue his business because he wouldn't just cross that one line. Like, obviously, he did everything illegal and the government wouldn't yeah. oppose him because they were afraid. Yeah. But as soon as he crossed that line, yeah. which I guess you could say is, like, maybe the murdering of... That Marius is about to do, you're the saying. Murder, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I'll, I'll tell you why it's similar. The murdering of, like, multiple presidential candidates yeah. or the attack on the um, the justice building in yeah. Colombia. Yeah. Once he finally crossed that line, it's like, all right, doesn't matter it's how much like money. It's on like Donkey Kong. Yeah, like he was offering to pay the entire debt, everything. Yeah. Like, no, we're go we're yeah. coming for you. We're yeah. coming for you. And Marius is like, this is like that kind of similar thing. You I, know what I mean, okay, I didn't see where you're going in the beginning, but I see that connection, and I think that you're right. That this is that moment for Marius. He's right there, old man Marius. He's been playing it close to the line until now, right. and he and now just rampant in the street. crossed it. Yep, just crossed it. So. Yeah, and he knows there's no coming back from this. So from now on, it's just a war until he dies. I, that must be the case because he does not go back. And he, he just keeps upping his game in, of, of, of craziness uh, and aggression. Right. And Sula must have known that too, Matteo, because he fled the city and he joined his men on the Adriatic. These were the, this is the army raised Matteo to sail east and to fight against Mithridates. 
As soon as he left the city, Sulpicius passed a law, Matteo, to give control of the campaign against Mithridates to Marius. Mm. There it was, out in the open now. There could be no mistaking Marius's intent. So Sulla joined his men. He told them what had happened. You can imagine how they felt. Marius's men, not his men, would reap the rewards of victory in Asia. And Sulla's men, it was all about the rewards. Right? We've that's t- how you get paid. That's how you get paid. We've talked about it now. This is a new army. This is the army. Armies are beholden to their generals, and you fight to get paid. Right. They would not be paid. Especially since Sulla was a brokey. He, he was a brokey, yeah, for a little while longer. And Marius Mateo immediately, like, my, I'm your friend, Marius. I'm your mentor, Marius. No. He sent two military tribunes to meet Sulla's army in Nola, which is the town on the Adriatic, where Sulla was camped, to take control of the army, and they were stoned to death by the army. Wow. In the city, Sulpicius took complete control. Marius had his goons start rounding up and murdering Sulla's friends and supporters. We saw that in the last episode. Marius is like a fallen Jedi. He really is. He is. He's like Anakin. He just got consumed, and then he marched on the Jedi Temple, basically. The, yes. Like, we were kind of... Um, we were referring to it a bit when we were talking about Scipio Milianus, but this is truly... It's like Anakin. Yes. You know? He was the hero of the Republic. Yes. Glorious. And because of dark influences, because of jealousy, um, he turned to the dark side. And he just Order 66, marched on the Jedi Temple, a.k.a. marched on Rome. Oh, I love it. Order 66. Marius just executed an Order 66. Yep. And he just... Just like that, yes. he went from being Anakin's friend, uh, being yes. Kenobi's friend, or whatever, being Sulla's friend. Yes. Just like that, dark side. Boom. So, Mateo, we're in the midst of this story. We had planned on doing one long episode to cover all of Sulla's story, and we're halfway through. And, and we're an hour in already. And we're an hour in. So, to our listeners, we didn't announce this at the beginning of the episode. We've realized it as we've moved along. This Sula episode is going to have to be two episodes. And Absolutely. We're, we're going to wrap this up in about two more minutes. But believe us when we tell you that Sula's worth it. Oh, yeah. We're Surely. not going to be doing this a lot, Mateo. Yeah, there's not many characters in history that we're going to have to... Maybe, especially in this period, maybe another character like that is going to be Augustus. I was thinking the same exact thing as you were talking. But for another, I don't know. Like four centuries, we're not going to get that. I think you're right. I would be surprised if we did. So please bear with us. We promise you that Sula is worth it. And so this is where we are. This is where we're going to wrap up this episode. Marius and his goons are rounding up and murdering Sula's friends and supporters. Sula is on the Adriatic with his 20,000-man army ready to sail east with instructions from the Senate to sail east when... He learns of the bloodbath that's happening in Rome and the fact that his command had been revoked. Mm-hmm. Matteo, we looked at this last episode, but let's just think about this for a second before we close this episode. Let's try to understand what Sulu was thinking. I think he felt like he had no choice. That he couldn't sail east, not yet. We, we can't really know for certain, and I feel like Sula has kind of gotten a bad rap in history, but I think that he felt that the Senate and the whole Republican threat. system... It was all it, coming down. It was collapsing. And like we said, he was a, a very conservative, old-fashioned supporter of the Republic. and He believed in the Republic. He was maybe the last... I don't want to say the word wrong. Hmm. Vest... Vestige. Vestige, yeah, vestige yeah, yeah. of the high golden era. He was the last product of what that was. And he wasn't even that, but he was the last real true, like, you I, know, the last leaf that fell from the tree. I have to tell you, I love the fact that you're saying that because as I've been doing this research the last week, and there's so much research to do, his story so complex, I went into it thinking one thing and I exited thinking another. I feel exactly as you just said. He was the last vestige. He was looking at this Republican system that had served Rome so well for 400 years. It was in peril. It was on its deathbed. The tree was dying. And he was the last 
the last leaf to fall from the tree, basically. And if it was not him, who? I mean, he gets a ton of flack for what happened next. And well, what's he going to do? He's just going to allow Marius to become basically Julius Caesar nine years yes. before? No. Which is precisely where Marius was going. A populist demagogue had taken control of the city. The Senate was cast Napoleon, aside. Basically. Napoleon. Oh, which is what I was going to say. Hmm. Even though not about Marius, but in, up to this point, Sulla reminds me a lot of Napoleon. And because they had very mm. similar, they had very similar come ups, except they mm. had two different mentalities. Mm. They both came from poor noble families. Yes. They both had a chip on their shoulder, wanted to prove themselves, came up through the ranks. Mm. And they both marched on Rome or Paris, except Napoleon eventually became like Julius Caesar and like Marius. Yes, he blew power up hungry. the old order. This guy, Sula, we're going to see what he does in the next episode. We are absolutely going to see what he does in the next episode. And that's where we're going to wrap this up. Sula's on the Adriatic. He has an army at his side. He's faced with a Napoleon decision right here. With a critical decision. The Roman Republic is on life support. Failing. What does he do? What does he do? Perfect place to stop. Absolutely. All right. To our listeners... Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for diving into one episode and figuring out that it's due halfway through. Oh, yeah. We promise you it's worth it. But there's a whole other hour of this. And it gets even better in part two. So and when it comes to two, like we said, the two-part episodes, sorry, I was mistaken. Not only Augustus, but definitely Julius Caesar is probably going to get it. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Julius Caesar is going to have to be a two-episoder. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think right. you're right. So... Thank you so much to our listeners. Hopefully the sound quality was reasonable and decent. We are... Gave it our all, you know. Massively crazy grateful to you. We'll do, obviously, the ranking at the end, and we'll do the shout-outs at the end. Please do, however, email us at infoatlostromanheroes.com. Leave reviews for us. They are so incredibly important. They're inspiring to us, but they also help spread the word about the podcast. Please leave reviews on and iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And and make sure to follow us on Twitter because, honestly, the best and most easiest way to interact with us and for us to interact with you guys is if you uh, follow us on Twitter and you keep up to date with all of our posts because we're going to have discussions, debates, polls, comment sections, everything. So please follow us on Twitter because... Although we're extremely grateful for everyone that listens to the podcast, the demographic of listeners that are followers on Twitter, uh, on Twitter, sorry, is criminally low. Yeah, so. yeah, we're 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 up to around thirty listeners right now, our followers on Twitter, and it's such a cool community of history nerds like us on Twitter. So we would love to hear from people on Twitter to interact with you. Uh, it's a fantastic medium. Leave the politics of Twitter aside if there is any that concerns you because it's just a cool way for us to interact with you. So that's it for now. Thank you so much. Can't wait to continue Sula's story next week. Thank you to all of you. Bye-bye.